Your Money Replay from Money FM 89.3. Influence with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. We're going to hear from Elijah Wee, Assistant Professor of Management at Foster School of Business, University of Washington. I came across a paper that he wrote that I thought was absolutely genius. And it talks about how victims of abuse can shift the script when it comes to power at the workplace. So if you have an abusive boss who's been making your life difficult or miserable at the workplace, we're going to have some solutions for you. It's not just quitting that is your only option or avoidance or confrontation. There is a third option. So how can you shift the power balance? to work in your favor. Elijah Wee is Assistant Professor of Management at the Foster School of Business, University of Washington. Welcome, Professor Wee. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. What a great topic. I wonder if you could start by sharing your views on really the state of abusive supervision as you see it here in Singapore. My research is really motivated by my interest in underdog. So I like to look at how individuals without power, without status, try to challenge kind of the status quo. And one interesting point about business supervision is that the current solutions for that is not satisfying. You know, most of the time you think about the power dynamics as being static, the leader is more powerful than you, and if you experience some level of abuse, you just have to take it, you know, and the only solution that's viable for you is kind of leave the organization. Yeah. So one interesting point that explored my research collaborators was actually looking at, is there a way that we can kind of change the power dynamics? Because I one, think that's fascinating because most people think that abuse is characterized by asymmetric power all the time, right? The perpetrator knows that they have sway over you and that's why they can do what they do. So really, can you flip the switch from beneath that asymmetry? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, and, and I think part of the assumption is that we see leaders as having a lot of power. Power is basically control. Well, they do. They write your KPIs. Exactly. And they control they resources you. that you need. Some of them control your promotion. Yep. But at the same time, leaders also depend on their followers, mm. right, for their performance, for their expertise. So I think trying to shift away from thinking about followers as just being defenseless, there's not much they can do. I think it's more inspiring to think about followers that they can come up with creative kind of strategies to kind of like change the power dynamics. Because by exactly that, what you said earlier, right, by changing this asymmetric power dependence, you can actually reduce not only future abuse, but actually promote kind of reconciliation. Okay. So key there was realize that you are needed if yes. you are an employee. Can you expand on that? And how can using that help you flip the power dynamics? Right. So there's two kind of like strategies that we found to be extremely useful. One is really about demonstrating your value. You know, value in the sense of, you know, do you have like an expertise that the leader require or certain information that a leader requires from you? So if you can signal that, then that can really change that. So that's kind of like one strategy, the value kind of like enhancement. Mm-hmm. The second strategy is kind of like trying to form a coalition. So that means you work with the other followers to put forward a kind of united front. 
So, you know, once you have this coalition, then it's less likely that the leader will be abusive towards one specific kind of follower. So what does this mean? Building a coalition, it looking means, for like-minded individuals at work? It means trying to put together like a united front. So if you can talk to the followers, because one kind of interesting dynamics that you observe is that the leader usually have like three or four different followers, right? So the leader has different alternatives. But for the follower, most of the time, you're only dependent on one, you know, supervisor or one leader. So as a follower that is experiencing some level of abuse, if you are able to convince the other uh, followers to put on kind of a united front to show that you're a collective group, then it's less likely that the leader will will be abusive towards the follower because they fear of, you know, uh, they still require, you know, the performance or the resources from the other. How do you signal that you are a coalition? Because key at the workplace is a sense of deference. I mean, you know, you have to signal respect at all times to your supervisor, even someone who has been abusive and demeaning and is framing you or smearing you in the worst possible light. So how do you and your fellow coalition of followers signal that you are a coalition? That's a great question. I mean, and I think it's one of the, the interesting part about focusing on the follower, right? Because the follower, you always have to be creative and subtle in terms of how you signal these, because the, the leader is in a position that they can easily retaliate, right? So forming a coalition is the way that, you know, you show that it's a united. So that means when you present things, you emphasize on how cohesive we are, you know, we are in this together, you know, like we work together, we collaborate on certain projects, we collaborate on this performance. So it's the idea to show the leader that it's not only one person that's doing all the work. This is a collective group of effort. If you continue your abuse, then it's very likely that you will not receive the kind of performance or the kind of resources that the leader desires. How do you demonstrate your value when a power dynamic at the workplace with an abusive boss typically is someone who looks away from your achievement and insists on belittling what you bring to the table? It is difficult. And I think that's one kind of interesting thing about abusive supervision. When we look at the research, it tends to perpetuate over time. And the reason for that is that because unless there's a way to significantly change the leader's perception of the follower, the rationale or the reason for abuse will, will continue. Mm. Right. So one way is to, to show that, okay, I'm building this capability. This is something that's important. It could be expertise or sometimes it could be something as simple as managing the schedule for the team. We, we don't have to always think about very difficult, you know, skill sets you need to demonstrate. Just something that's valuable to the leader. Or even if you're someone who's able to sense the morale or the sentiments of the follower, that also can be a very important kind of information for the leader. Does your research in terms of saying, you know, you need to demonstrate your value at the workplace put even more demand on the person who suffered from abuse? You know, it's akin to a man who's run a marathon, is completely dehydrated and you're saying to them, now you have to run another 100 kilometers and with good attitude right. this time. And that's, show how great a runner you are. No, that's a, that's a great <laughs> analogy. Running a marathon, it's painful. But at the same time, I think it's the purpose. Most, when you experience abusive supervision, it's easy to take the high road and to leave the organization. But what happens if you find a lot of meaning in your current work? You still feel committed to the work. You see the purpose of your work. But you have this leader who is basically being a jerk to you. 
you still see the bigger picture. So instead of just thinking that, oh, there's no other option for me other than to leave the organization, why not try to kind of change the power dynamics in a way that can help you to kind of move forward? Okay, so does this mean that you want to increase your supervisor's dependence on you if you are being abused? That's one tack that you can take. Right. Okay, and you signal this subtly. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. do you have any case studies to show how you know this has worked? So we sampled this into industry, one in the banking industry and the other is kind of real estate industry. And these are samples in China. So we, we know that China is a high power kind of distance. There's a lot of deference. You know, there's a lot of respect for the hierarchical distance. But what was fascinating to us is that this is actually a very conservative test, right? The fact that if you can see even employees in China are engaging in all these tactics and it's successful in terms of changing, you know, kind of like the incident of future abuse or even leading to reconciliation, then we expect this, you know, uh, behaviors or this strategy to be useful in other contexts, including kind of Singapore or even in the US. So you studied a couple of hundred Yes. In China. Right. So the reviewer, which is basically part of the academic publishing process, right, they have very high expectations. So we design like a three panel design using real estate industry. And then they say, why not you replicate that in another setting? And then we went out to find another sample in the banking. So the confluence of these two findings across the studies makes us more confident in terms of the applicability and of the tactics that we talk about. Yeah, that's great. Because, you know, one of my questions was, is this culturally specific because we know that in Asia there's such a top-down culture and if you say you want to demonstrate your value maybe by coming up with a task or taking on carving up more responsibility for yourself at the workplace doesn't the leader who is abusive right aren't they going to feel even more threatened because they want to there's this perception of needing to put on this facade that all good things come through me not my people on the ground exactly and and that's I think really part of the challenge like the it's, it's this philosophy of leadership, right? We think that, you know, the leader has to be in control, you know, and then there's always this paradox that like you've talked to senior leader management. There was desire, creativity, innovation, but at the same time, they are like micromanaging the processes, you know, they feel that they need to have that level of control over, you know, their employees. And that's kind of like the challenge. I mean, if you want followers to demonstrate their values, to take initiative, then you must be a little bit comfortable with taking kind of like a little bit of the back seat. So think of it as almost like you're a shepherd. You're providing the structures and resources, but you're allowing, you know, the followers to kind of take the lead. That's a good point that needs to be said in this day and age with disruption where good ideas can come from anywhere. Exactly. Especially from the bottom up. Especially, (laughs) yeah. So what do you say to someone uh, who is listening in right now and really wants to stop future abuse but is a little bit still confused about how to motivate their boss to want to repair the relationship? That's what you're saying, right? I think first is understand that we have the ability to make changes. I think that's one key change to move away from the idea that, oh, just because I'm a follower, just because I'm lower down the hierarchy, I don't have any power, I don't have any resources. I think it's to really 
feel that you can be empowered. You know, there are ways for you to navigate this power politics, so to speak. The fact is, being someone that's less powerful, you're already paying a lot of attention to the leader. So you know what is important to the leader. What are the goals that the leaders is trying to pursue? So these are actually important information that you can use in terms of thinking about how can you uh, try to signal your value even more. You know, like if you think that you know the company is moving towards a new market, and you're going to do like a market analysis, or you want to develop new analytical uh, skill sets, then there's something that you can forecast, and you can try to work towards that. Really fascinating. And if I might end, Professor, why did you come to this area of research to start? Well, it's my fascination in an underdog. I, I feel that there's enough research on being like what it means to be powerful, what it means to be someone of high status. But if you think about it, we all start in an organization at the lowest bottom rank. There is a need for us to think about, like, creatively, different ways you can move up. You know, if you have low status in the organization, how do you actually move up? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, SES, you know, socioeconomic status, but. What we are not neglecting is what happened when you have low economic status, and maybe you graduated from a great school, a great MBA program, and what happens in the workplace. A lot of us are still burdened by our origin, kind of SES, and we don't really talk about that. You know, so trying to understand this whole kind of dynamics, whether it's power or status in the workplace, is something that's kind of like fascinating to me. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. Thank you so much. Uh, we're so fortunate that you're in town to be able to speak with you. Elijah Wee is Assistant Professor of Management at Foster School of Business, University of Washington. Hey, if somebody out there is interested in reading more of your research, can they find it anywhere? Of course. They can look at the University of Washington website and from my web link, you should be able to see kind of the papers and the research I'm working on. Great getting to know you. Thank you for being here on Influence. Thank you so much for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfma.com. 893.sg or download the SPH radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.